Hey everyone, how are you? Uh, I want to apologize. I did not live up to my promise. I had said I was going to get another episode out over this past weekend, but I guess you'll have to settle for Monday night. Uh, today is January 9th, 2017, and this is episode 34. I'm going to continue kind of what I talked about in the previous episode. So I had talked about uh, Governor Andrew Cuomo in New York State, his proposal to make state colleges, public colleges of the New York State free. So New York State, the taxpayers of New York State would cover the difference between whatever other aid students could get and the actual tuition rates of those public universities uh, for stu- for all students from families making $125,000 or less. So I talked a lot about education, you know, got into one of my typical rants about higher education in that episode. And if you're turned off by those discussions, then you're, you'll probably want to turn off this episode as well, because I'm going to discuss college again, because an article came up that was just way too juicy for me to be able to put off for another episode. And I figured I would, I, I try to have kind of carry over from one episode to the next, not have them be complete distinct entities that are standing alone. So I figure what I talked about in that episode can relate pretty well to what I want to talk about here. I I will talk about later. I think this will be a, a short discussion, but it's what everybody's talking about today, and that is Meryl Streep's speech last night at the Golden Globes. I wasn't watching it live, but I did see it later on, and that's what everybody's talking about. I, you know, I don't really care what Meryl Streep thinks or really what Hollywood thinks anymore, and I don't know why so many people seem to take stock in what they say because they don't really think for themselves, I think. And you're not going to hear anything challenging that's going to make you think differently or make you challenge the orthodoxies out there, the things that a lot of people seem to hold in their mind as if they're common sense. Listening to the majority of these Hollywood celebrities speak, all they're doing is parroting these same lines. They're not helping people to think for themselves. They're not, they're not saying anything provocative, not necessarily that you need to say anything provocative in order to be valuable, but they're not saying anything that challenges people to think. And ultimately when I'm taking my scarce time to read stories, to watch videos, to consume media, I want to consume media that's going to make me think a little bit differently or to, to approach a story from a different angle than maybe what I had first thought. But you can tell what these Hollywood celebrities and I'm, I'm lumping them all together. I know that they are not all kind of establishment Democrat types, but a vast majority of them are. And so you can predict what they're going to say about a given story or a given issue without even hearing them speak. And so I don't think it's really worth our time to be analyzing what they're saying. And I don't know who's really putting a lot of stock into what Meryl Streep says. Uh, but I will discuss that briefly at the end. But first, what I wanted to talk about was this article by Noah Smith. So Noah Smith is an economist. He's on Twitter. Uh, it's at No Opinion, uh, N-O-A-H-P-I-N-I-O-N. I've gone back and forth with him a couple times just about things that he's tweeted. He was a he was a Hillary Clinton supporter, definitely, uh, and he is an economist with a clear partisan bent. And these are my least favorite types of economists. Um, I kind of put him into that. Paul Krugman type of category. He's not quite as alarmist as as Paul Krugman, and not as many people know who he is, but he falls into that same kind of 
category. And I came upon this article not even through him. It was on Bloomberg, and I clicked on it. I said, oh, I know who this guy is. I've interacted with him before. Um, and it sounds like something that he would write. And it ties in well with my previous discussion. You'll you'll see why. So the, the title of this article, I'll have it linked in the suggested readings, referenced articles uh, portion of the post on the website. It's called The U.S. Needs More Colleges. So basically what he's proposing in this article He's saying that Cuomo's proposal is not radical. Uh, it's basically tinkering at the edges, is what he says. And he says, as long as the spots in universities and colleges are scarce, nothing is ever going to really change because there's a relatively fixed number of spots at universities. And as more people want to go to those spots, Either they're going to be rationed by price, or if you put in controls where prices can only go to a certain point, then they start being rationed off based on qualifications. So in order for more students to be able to go to colleges, we need more colleges. So he says, let me find the exact quote. Uh, One way to do this is to make public schools expand their number of students they admit. A second way is to actually build new universities especially in underserved areas of the country. My favorite idea is for the federal government to create a national university system similar to those that exist in most other advanced countries. States could also get into the vocational education business and increase the number of community colleges. Uh, So there's a lot in that paragraph that I want to unpack here. I think it's the most important paragraph in this article. Not that I'm not, I I will be referencing other parts of, of this editorial here, but that's his second solution is to act to actually build new universities especially in underserved areas of the country and then he ties that into the idea of a federal government university system so he wants the government to come in and to build universities because him in his almighty wisdom thinks that the united states needs more colleges and because people think we need more colleges thus that means we should decree more colleges be built, so there are more spots for students. He says later, which he's an economist, he's got to understand how free markets work, but he says uh, increasing the supply of college wouldn't be free, but compare that to tuition subsidies, which also cost money but don't actually increase the number of college-educated Americans. The case for increased supply seems clear. More supply would also help push down the sticker price of college, making it cheaper to subsidize tuition for the poor. Supply and demand don't always work, but it seems reasonable to at least give it a try. Yeah, why don't we actually give supply and demand a try? Let's not interject government into the market. Let's let people decide how much do we want to spend on education. Not Noah Smith, not people that think they know how much we should be spending on education, think we know how many people should be college educated. Let's leave money in people's pockets and let them decide what do I want to spend on college? What do I want to spend on education? Let's let markets actually work. So he says he wants to give supply and demand a try by just increasing supply on a whim because Noah Smith says that we need more colleges in the United States. Why don't we actually let free markets work? And it's this kind of attitude that gets me angry about a lot of different topics but education 
and healthcare as well are two that stand out the most where people just seem to ignore how markets work and how markets have worked quite well in a lot of other areas and a lot of other industries and made our lives better in so many areas. And I know that they're not perfect. And I've said that time and time again on this podcast that markets are not perfect, but they are the best solution to getting the best outcome at the lowest price possible you know, possible within certain constraints and everything is scarce, of course, you know, scarcity is a fact of human life. But with the idea of scarcity, markets are the best way to allocate scarce resources and get the best benefit. Uh, And education is no different. So if we do not have enough universities in the United States, let's let the market dictate that. If people, let's say, okay, let's say there are not enough universities in the United States. So there are, there are too few spots. There are a lot of people chasing these relatively few spots at U.S. universities. That means that universities are going to be able to charge a higher price than they would be able to otherwise. Competitors are going to rush in to fill that gap. If, if, people, if, if other competitors, other investors see, now we can make money by we can charge less than what the current competitors in the marketplace are charging for tuition and offer a comparable service, they're going to rush in and they're going to fill that gap and it's going to bring prices down. And eventually there's an equilibrium point where you know you can't bring prices down any further. Uh, but that's what the market does. That's how supply and demand works. So when he says it seems reasonable to at least give supply and demand a try, yes, let's give supply and demand a try. Let's get government out of the student loan business which has caused markets to be so out of whack in higher education in the first place. And let's let people decide. Let's put the hands, or let's put the power in the hands of the people. And I know that when you say that, when you say put put the power in the hands of the people, people think let's put it in the hands of the government to decide how things are going to go. But there's no more power in the hands of the individual person than in a truly free market. And I don't know if Noah Smith understands that or if he's willingly ignoring how markets work because I know that he knows how they work. It's it's basic economics. But for some reason with education, people think that it's it does not work like other services or like other goods when it does. You know, imagine imagine if I wrote an article saying the US has too few tattoo parlors saying that me and my infinite wisdom, you know, tattoo prices are too high, so we need we need the government to come in and build more tattoo parlors to bring tattoo prices down because you know, I don't know if this is true, but maybe poor people disproportionately have a more difficult time paying for tattoos. So in order to bring prices down to the point where everybody that can get a tattoo or that more people who want to get a tattoo can get them, we need to build more tattoo parlors. Now, I know it's a different good. People see tattoos as being different, but don't you see the arrogance of that statement of saying that we have too few tattoo parlors? I don't know that, and nobody knows that. That's why central planning in the Soviet Union did not work, because you cannot have people on high in their ivory towers or wherever they are from a distance trying to dictate how things should go, trying to plan an economy. And that's what Noah Smith wants to do here. And if you take it to its logical conclusion, it reaches the point of central planning like happened in the Soviet Union.
And I know that this is a, a far ways off from that. You know, a proposal like this is obviously at one end of the spectrum and, and central planning is far off on the other end. But it's the same idea. It's, it's improving time and time again that people with actual boots on the ground making the decisions with their own money do the best at allocating these scarce resources. Now, of course, there are always business failures. There, there are people that make the wrong decisions. You know, rational decisions at the time don't always turn out to be right. And I think everybody, every human being knows that, that you do make mistakes. You buy something thinking it's a great deal, but it turns out it doesn't have the benefits that you that you thought. Maybe you, you buy a, a car, a used car that ends up being a lemon. Um, you know, maybe you, you make the wrong move taking a certain job or you invest your money in what you think is a great business idea, but it turns out to fail. Of, of course, all that happens. And that's part of capitalism. You know, profits are just as important as losses because the threat of losses makes uh, the competition basically that much more fierce and the competition to stay alive and to do what you need to do to cut prices or to increase quality that much stronger. Um, and if you didn't have the threat of losses, I think capitalism would not work as well as it does. Uh, so all of those things, of course, happen. It's not like every rational decision is a good decision necessarily, but we've proven over time. And if, if the 20th century should tell us anything, it's that central planning does not work and putting power in the hands of people is the way to get the best outcome. And the, and the best way, like I said before, to put power in the hands of the individual person is to free up markets. And basically what Noah Smith wants to do here is to take the power out of the hands of the people to have people that claim to know more, basically central planning education, and to basically decree that new universities be built to bring the to bring prices down. And I figure this is probably as good of a time as any to talk about this because I think it's a related topic. Uh, but I, I mentioned before how people seem to think of education as being different from other goods and services and how I really don't think that it is. And I had a discussion with my wife's family. So I, I, um, I spent probably about four or five days, uh, yeah, about four days with her family and we typically have good discussions you know they're smart people and they're oftentimes other people around to other relatives it's not just her immediate family uh, but other relatives are around and other friends oftentimes and it's it, it's usually a really good time for for conversation and they're Canadian so a lot of times they think about things differently than I do I learn more about how the Canadians do things differently from the way that Americans do things and you know, I'm quick to sometimes criticize things I see in, in Canada. I'm, of course, very self-deprecating, if, if, if I want to use that term, about the United States as well, very critical of, of the United States and many of the things that we do. Uh, but we had a conversation come up, and it started by talking about economics, and uh, my wife's sister brought up Thomas Piketty's Capital in the 21st Century, and she hadn't read it, and I'd happened to read it. Uh, I had done a, an episode on this show about the book, basically entirely about about capital in the 21st century. And then um, another person in the room brought up Jim Rickards, and uh, she was currently reading a, a book by Jim Rickards. I like Jim Rickards. I just read a book by Jim Rickards. So it started there. 
talking about economics and then you know we started talking gets more about u.s issues issues with the with the u.s economy and kind of by proxy the canadian economy as well because we are so intertwined and then eventually i don't i don't know exactly how the conversation got to this point but we began to speak about education and uh you know i didn't come out hard and fast with this opinion it kind of it took a while to get to this point i think uh my wife's brother's girlfriend said that U.S. teachers are underpaid. And I said, well, I don't think that U.S. teachers are underpaid. I think good U.S. teachers are underpaid. And I said, I think that the the public school system is the reason why that is. There's not differentiation in pay based on performance. And I said that I think probably the best way for those best teachers to be adequately rewarded is to have a privatized education system. So I, I said, with those two choices in mind, I would I would clearly choose a completely private education system. Kind of the same reason why, like I said before, I'm I'm arguing for a completely private higher education system. I don't think there's a difference between making those two arguments. I think if you're going to be consistent and you're going to say that I I don't want the government involved in higher education, well, if the best outcomes in higher education come when government's out of the way, then the best outcomes for K through 12 education is also when government gets out of the way. And I said, I know this probably is a controversial opinion in this room. And it was, it certainly was a a controversial opinion. And um, I got some pretty emotional responses, but I kept trying to harp on the point that education is fundamentally not different from from other goods and services. And I kept coming back to food production. I could have used any of a multitude of industries. But you know, imagine if we put the government at the head of food production. Would we have the different niches that have come about, the, the different niches that serve different groups of customers? So I use you know Dollar Tree. It's a place where I shop a lot, but I know it, it targets the low end of the, the socioeconomic distribution. Would you have a, a Dollar Tree in place? Would you have everything ranging up to Whole Foods and uh, whatever other, you know, high-cost supermarkets with organic foods and everything are there? Would you have the same availability that you have, you know, the same variety in the aisles? When you, when you go down an aisle and you have, you have 15 different choices of, you know, juices, of juice brands, would you have that if the government was in charge of food distribution and sales? I don't think so. And if, if the government was in charge of food distribution, would we have better outcomes for the worst off among us? And I said, once again, I don't think so. I think that the worst off among us do far better in a system where, you know, their money matters and where there are stores out there that cater to people in their demographic, like Dollar Tree, that was the example I kept using. And I said, I think the same thing works with education, I think that the outcomes for the worst off among us would be better in a private system than in a public system. But for whatever reason, and teachers are very guilty of this in the United States as well, they think that something about teaching makes it impossible for, for or it makes it unfair for them to be evaluated. And yet we do this in every other profession. Every other profession 
is judged. You find ways to judge who are the best in that profession. And the best in that profession are attractive to other employers. They drive their their own costs up. They're able to demand higher salaries or able to move elsewhere to another company in order to get the higher salary that they deserve because of their increased productivity. What is it about teaching that makes it different from other professions? I, I just don't understand that. I've never gotten a good argument as to why that is. So the argument that was being given to me in that conversation, because it turned into several people against me, but what they were saying is, well, this is one argument. I'm not saying this is this is the only argument, but what if you are talking about a professor, uh, if we're talking about uh, a college or, or university, and students rate that professor very highly because he doesn't give any homework, he, uh, he gives easy tests, he doesn't take attendance, so people love him because, well, you don't really have to do anything and you can still get an A in his class, you can still get a high grade in his class. I said, well, student feedback wouldn't be the only determining factor in, in how you evaluate a professor. Um, I said, yes, it will play a role because obviously people being willing to take a given professor's class is what brings immediate revenue to the school. I said, I understand that, but that's not how business works. You don't just think about the short-term revenue that's brought in. It's like, imagine if a computer company they figured out a way to sell you a crap computer that looked great for six months, but then would, you know, would die without fail within six months. Yeah, maybe that computer company would do great for six months. Yeah, maybe they'd get a ton of immediate revenue coming in because they could, uh, you know, they could produce that computer for next to nothing and sell it for a high price because it was the, the hot new thing and it looked great and people thought it was going to be great. But people are going to figure out that that computer is not worth my investment. I'm going to need to build or I'm going to need to buy a new computer in six months. The same thing would happen with that university. Students taking that given class, are they going to be as prepared for the real world as somebody taking the class of a tougher professor? Of a tougher prof professor, you know, maybe she, uh, she gives them thought-provoking homework. Maybe she gives far better lectures. Maybe she keeps them extra to, to make an important point. Maybe she gives tougher tests that really reinforce what you need to learn. Yeah, do students love that in the short term? Probably not all of them, but those students are going to be far more prepared to go out into the real world. And if you have two universities, one that employs solely professors of the former, like the first guy that I talked about, and another university that employs professors solely of the latter, so like the the lady I just talked about, that latter university is going to be around for much longer. Their students are going to be better prepared to go out and get jobs. They're going to have higher average incomes coming out of university. And people are going to see that. Future customers are going to see that. So yes, maybe you can carry out kind of this, this sham college where all the professors are easy for a given period of time. But those professors are not as valuable as ones that actually teach something because ultimately what is college but a but basically an investment of your time and money in order to improve your living standards later and oftentimes improve your living standards by being able to earn more money than you would be able to absent that college degree 
so I said, the marketplace will figure out a way to evaluate professors. And that already happens. I mean, it's especially in the U.S. where there are a lot of private universities. Quality teachers are, you know, they are sought after. And they are paid better than than professors that are just kind of there to earn a paycheck. They're just there to, to be highly rated on, on Rate My Professor. But really where I wanted to have the discussion, it wasn't about professors, but it was about teachers. It was about teachers in K through 12 because just like I said, there's kind of a block, but there's kind of a block between where people think about most goods and services and where they think about education. The same thing within education, people think about K through 12 education far differently than they think about post-secondary education. And teachers are no different than than professors. That same example. Um, just like student evaluations wouldn't be the only way that a teacher's quality would be evaluated uh, in K through 12 or in uh, in post-secondary, I don't think student evaluations would be the only factor considered in in K through 12 teacher evaluations. There'd be a number of things. Another argument that was given to me was that, well, you know, if we have a more competitive environment, then then you may have teachers that are trying to basically steal kids for their own pet projects. Like, because they're competing with each other, then there's not the incentive to work together as a team. Everybody wants to stand out, so they're all going to have kind of their own silos and their in, in their own areas that they're that they're focusing on. I said, well, that may happen. That happens in every industry. I said, but there's a high premium being put on in every other industry on being a quality team player. And that has value. If you're able to work well with fellow teachers and you have a good reputation, that is something valuable that should be reflected in how you're demanded in, in the demand that the industry has for you as a teacher, people that are constantly trying to infringe on what others are doing and trying to interfere with what others are doing are not going to be highly in demand. I mean, look at any, Look at any job description out there today. Anybody that's that's looked for a job recently knows this. There's such an emphasis being put on being a team player, being somebody that can work with others because that's where so many so many professions now are going. There are very few professions where you're working in a vacuum, where you're working by yourself and where there's not value added by being able to work with other people, being able to interact with other people. And teachers are no different. So I don't think that argument holds any merit either. So I think teachers can be evaluated just like any other profession. And will it be perfect? No. I mean, any other profession, I'm sure there are people out there that are underpaid versus what their actual value is. You know, maybe maybe they're happy where they are. Maybe they're not somebody to try to justify getting a raise. Maybe they're so maybe they're afraid of change and they don't want to go out and look at what else is out there. So maybe they are underpaid versus what they could be paid elsewhere in the industry. And I'm sure the same thing would happen with teachers as well. But I think it would be a far better system, not even taking the students into account, but a far better system for teachers because no longer would you have good teachers subsidizing bad teachers. No longer do you have pay based on tenure. Now, if you are a good teacher, you are going to have a job. If you are somebody that's in demand, whether you've taught for one year or 20 years, if you are a good teacher and you can you can show basically these are my outcomes, you are going to have a job. There's not going to be the system today, and I'm talking 
I, I do have a U.S. bias, so I don't know all the details about how the Canadian system works, but a lot of the same arguments apply. And Canadian teachers are paid far more than American teachers. And that was another one of the big discussions. You know, the, the Canadian Teachers Union is, or the Ontario Teachers Union, I was in the province of Ontario. The Ontario Teachers Union is even more powerful than the U.S. Teachers Unions, which are the most powerful unions in the United States. Uh, so they have a ton of power up there and teachers are paid better in Canada, especially relative to, to their average salaries than they are in the United States. But the same arguments apply. Uh, another thing and, you know, another benefit that I, that I said is the ability to potentially earn more money. So in a market, there's not really a cap on your potential earnings. You know, there's, there is a, a cap eventually, you know, at what point there's, there's probably only a certain amount of additional profits that you can bring in as a teacher. So there is a, there is a cap theoretically on, on what you could earn, but it's not a cap imposed by, you know, you've taught for one year. So this is now your salary. You've taught for five years. Now this is your salary. You've taught for 10 years. Now this is your salary. You know, those are real caps in place, but in an actual free market, those would not exist and you'd be able to earn, you know, basically up to the additional profits that you could bring in for your school. Um, what this would do is it would draw far higher quality prospective teachers. So first of all, if there really isn't added value and, and, and I'm pretty convinced that most education programs in the United States. So, so teachers programs to get your teacher certifications and everything add very little value versus the time and money spent getting those certifications. And I think, and of course this is me, I, I can't really quantify this or I can't, I can't really substantiate this. So I, I just want to make that clear. But I think if you were to take two students of equal ability and have one study mathematics and maybe get a couple maybe get a year or two of experience in, in the private sector or have that student go through a program where they're learning about teaching and they're just getting a teaching certification and doing their student teaching, I would take that first student and I think his, his or her outcomes would be higher than that latter students because I think they would be an expert in their field, assuming that they're, that they're teaching mathematics. I use expert, you know, they would be, they would know a lot in their field uh, far more than a than a teacher that went through a or a prospective teacher that went through a teacher certification program uh, and maybe learned a bit about mathematics along the way, but then was trying to teach mathematics in a high school or you know in a middle school or or whatever. I would take that first student first. That's kind of the whole idea behind Teach for America too. Is is how do we get how do we get these students that haven't gone the route of getting a teaching certification, but are highly qualified and highly talented into classrooms. That's the whole idea behind Teach for America. And I, and I generally like what they do. Uh, but I think a free market would, would, would help solve a lot of those issues. You know, if there's not a value added in teaching certification programs, then you're gonna see more students hired directly out of, you know, out of getting a four-year degree in mathematics or in biology. Um, whereas now, you know, there's kind of this artificial 
certification process where schools are told, you know, public schools are told you have to hire students that have this level or uh, teachers that have this level of certification. And so it excludes everybody that doesn't have that certification, regardless of what they could actually achieve in the classroom. And so it restricts the pool of teachers. And then only people that are willing to go through that process are able to get those teaching jobs. And oftentimes, you know, if you're going to be investing five years there's far more earning power to be had and you're, you're far more flexible as well going and getting a degree in something else. You know, especially people that don't know exactly what they, what they want to do. Do they want to pigeonhole themselves into getting uh, this teaching certification when basically all that it qualifies you to do is teach or you can go and you can get this, uh, you know, this mathematics degree where you could go a variety of different ways. You know, you could, you could go into business or you could decide to go get a PhD and maybe be a professor eventually, or, you know, you could do a number of different things with that mathematics degree. I know I keep coming back to, to that example, uh, using the mathematics degree versus the teaching degree, but you're, you're preventing your best and brightest students from pursuing teaching. Not only for that reason, so not only because only people that are now that now don't see enough earning power in their other prospects, only those people will be choosing to go through the teaching process. And I, and I also want to make it clear, I know that some people just love teaching and would do it regardless of what they're being paid, but the average person does not operate that way. The average person responds to incentives and constraints and the average person does have a certain price where, you know, yeah, maybe that's my dream career, but if I'm being paid that much more, I want to go into that field, even though it's not my dream. I think most people react that way, at least at a certain point. But the other prong of this effect, so that um, the other side of this is that because your earnings power isn't capped artificially, you will attract students from other fields or students that now would likely go into other fields because you can go into a into a particular field and you know your your earning power you could potentially be earning two three hundred thousand dollars a year if you end up doing very well in that field but in teaching you could be the best teacher out there and and where you ultimately capped at you ultimately can earn what seventy five thousand dollars depending on where you are a hundred thousand dollars probably at the most um, even if you're teaching in, in one of the more expensive areas of the country how is that going to attract your best and brightest students? It's very, very difficult to. The only best and brightest that you're going to attract are those that just love teaching so much that they would do it regardless of the price. But to all you idealists out there, most people do not react that way. You know, most people are not just going to go out and get the highest paying profession out there regardless of what it is. But people do respond to higher incomes and, and, and higher potential earning when choosing a career. The vast majority of people do. So I think you'd be attracting better teachers in this system. And the flip side of that, I mean, I think a, a big part of attracting better teachers is you would have better outcomes. And just like in, in any other free market, it tends to produce better outcomes at lower prices over time. And what have we seen in education, both in higher education and in K through 12 education, is stagnant or worsening outcomes and rapidly increasing prices, which is not how things should work. That's not how things work in, in other markets. And just like I said, education is not different from other goods and services. 
it shouldn't react differently in that manner either. You know, quality should be increasing, especially with the internet. If you if you look at all the resources we now have at our disposal that we didn't have 20, 25 years ago, and, you know, it's, it's improving every year, but you have the internet, you have this wealth of information out there. You have the ability to communicate for cheap or for free that you did not have before using Skype, you know, using any of a number of different communication platforms, message boards, whatever it may be, you know, whatever the best way or whatever ways that teachers would communicate information to students or students would, would become educated. There are so many resources out there available at a fraction of the cost of what they would have been 20 to 25 years ago and a lot of resources that did not even exist that the idea for them did not even exist 20 to 25 years ago what sense does it make that prices have increased what sense does it make that as these prices have increased outcomes have not improved there is no sense to it and the only reason why that is is because you have these fiefdoms and this entire protected segment of the population and people are afraid to talk about it because they know that there's this whole lobby out there. And, you know, I, I got a good taste of it in this conversation that I had over the holidays that is going to freak out if you try to suggest this and freak out and say that, well, parents don't really know anything about education. And if you put if you put decisions in the hands of the of the parents, then students are going to be indoctrinated. And the, the point that I made in response to that, or that I wanted to make, I actually didn't get as far down this path as I wanted to because there were so many different arguments happening that I kind of had to take uh, the first one that came to me and kind of let the other ones fall away. But um, one of the arguments was that parents don't know anything, basically, and teachers know far more than the parents. I said, yeah, probably teachers do know more than the parents, you know, just like you could put the smartest person in the country as the head of uh, the economic planning board, but that, that the smartest person in the country does not know more than the collective actions of millions of individuals, just like a group of teachers or all the teachers in the country do not know more than the collective wisdom of all the parents in the country, all the parents with school-aged children in the country. And that's the real difference. And if you don't have if you don't have choice over how your child is educated, what control do you have over your child? You know, what agency do you have as a parent if you don't get to choose how your child is educated? You know, do nutritionists know more than than parents about how children should be fed, about what's best for children? Yes, but should we have nutritionists feeding children every meal? You know, should we should we have nutritionists be making the decisions, be going to to the supermarket with parents and buying the meals that they're going to feed their kids? No, I don't think that's feasible whatsoever. I think people would say that's ridiculous. Well, I think it's ridiculous in the exact same way that we think that parents shouldn't be able to make decisions about their own children's education. And I know that people would respond, well, you know, now you do have, there, there are private schools out there where you can send your child. Yeah, but it's very difficult for most families to be able to swing that because you're getting taxed either way. You're getting taxed on your local public school or public schools, regardless of whether or not you send your child there. And so if you decide to send them to a private school, then 
you're not only paying the taxes that go to funding your local public school, but you're also paying the tuition at that private school. And public schools, as more and more has been spent on public schools, we've crowded out more and more of the whole private school establishment. You know, there was a there was a, a long tradition of Catholic schools in this country, various uh, religious schools in the United States, and those have withered away. They have really, really struggled. Basically, it, as people have needed to be taxed more to fund public schools because what's happened, prices have gone up as quality has stagnated. It's crowded out private schools increasingly. But just this whole mindset of we know better than you and, you know, we're going to take your kids and, and, and we're going to, to mold them. I think it's just a really dangerous idea. And if you start taking it out to its logical conclusion, I, I gave that food example with having a nutritionist come and shop with you at the supermarket. Um, that's one example of many. But, you know, what if, what if somebody said, well, I know better than you who your child should be playing with. So some bureaucrat makes the decision as to who your kid will play with or who your kid will have playdates with and will schedule the playdates because that person knows more about all the kids than you do. That kid knows or that person knows more than, um, you know, than any one individual parent does. So they should be in charge of setting up playdates and of determining which children should be friends with what other children. I mean, I think the ideas like that are just ridiculous, but those are what have been forced down our throats by the public school lobby, by the public school teacher lobby, essentially. And I think people advocating kind of what I'm advocating here are the true voices for students in this country. People say, oh, you just want the, you just want the market to, to run unfettered and you don't care about, about poor people. You, those are the types of arguments that you get. And every time this, this, this discussion comes up, I hear that kind of response. Um, and I kind of got that response, you know, not as, not as extreme during that conversation, but the implication was still there. But no, I think I and other people making this argument are standing up for those people. And I said before, I am thoroughly convinced that the outcomes for the worst off among us would be better in that system than they are in our current system today. They would be better off in a free system than in a government-controlled system. Now, would outcomes be as equal? Probably not. Um, but what does equality matter if everybody has worse quality? So if you have a quality, but everybody's you know, standard, everybody's the quality that everybody is receiving is less, then everybody is worse off. And I think that's the type of system we have now. And uh, my brother-in-law was saying that he thinks that Canada values equality for equality's sake. And I, cause I was making the very utilitarian argument there that I think the best outcome for the most people comes from freer markets. Um, and I said, I don't think there is really any inherent value of equalizing outcomes in that way when everybody is worse off as a result, or, you know, the vast majority of people are worse off as a result. Um, and he said that he thinks that Canada sees things differently at the Canadian culture. They value equality even if outcomes are worse. And of course, I said I, I I think that's a crazy way of doing things. And he agreed. You know, he was he, he completely saw where I was coming from. He's more 
libertarian leaning and in favor of of markets. So he was trying to kind of, I guess, translate what some of the other people were saying to me. So maybe there is something to be said for that in terms of um, cultural differences. But I think that's crazy. I think if if you have the ability to improve outcomes, even if the improvements aren't spread out equally over the entire population, if if everybody's improving, that should be something we should pursue. And that's kind of what China said, what what their leadership said when they opened up markets, you know, 25 years ago, 25, 30 years ago. They basically said, we need people to get rich. We don't care about is, you know, are the benefits of freer markets going to be spread out over the entire population? We want everybody's standards of living to improve. And look at, you know, look at China's success story. Look at what they've done in that span of time over the last 25 years, where they were then to where they are now. How many millions upon millions of people have had their lives improved? How many millions of people were struggling just to have enough to eat and now are living a middle-class type of lifestyle? You know, maybe below what we would think of as middle-class, but they're certainly not struggling to eat anymore. Um, They're not struggling to survive, struggling to eke out a survival anywhere close to what they were at that point in time 25 years ago. Um, That's because they recognize that, you know, improving living standards for all is what really we should be all about. What do I care? Unless, Unless my life is run, unless envy is my biggest value, and I'm putting value in quotes because I think it's a, a, a huge hindrance, um, but unless envy is all that matters to me, what do I care if a guy down the street gets three times as rich? If I'm, if I'm getting richer, if I'm a little bit richer and you know I've, if I'm a bit better off than I was last year, I should be happy about that. I should not let envy dictate my life just because somebody else has improved more than I have. I should be happy about those improvements that I get. And I think that's what people don't understand about markets and what people don't want to embrace. They embrace equality for equality's sake. But I think when you do that, you are you're hurting the worst off among us. Just like in China, if if they had refused to open up markets back in the early 1990s, where would they be today? They would still have the, the vast majority of those millions upon millions of people that I said rose out of near starvation to living middle-class lifestyles. Those people would still be eking out a living in the same way. And it was only that people were willing to say, you know, we don't, we're not valuing equality for equality's sake any longer and we're going to free up markets and it, and we want to see we want to see everybody's lot improve that that happened and i think the same thing applies to k through 12 education applies to higher education in the united states and until we embrace it i think we're going to continue to be in the same kind of mud you know still spinning our tires in the in the mud not able to get out uh, because Nothing's going to improve. You're just continually trying to patchwork a system that is flawed at its foundational level. Another another thing I wanted to discuss, I had said this at the beginning of the show, I wanted to briefly talk about Meryl Streep's speech because everybody is talking about it. So I do try to at least touch on those things. I don't think it's worth a lot of time. Uh, I, I don't think that her opinion ultimately really matters that much. I know that's 
callous to say about anybody's opinion, but uh, she's obviously isolated off from much of the rest of the country. Uh, looking at the transcript of what she says, though, I don't, I don't necessarily disagree with much of what she said. My issue with it is that she's only saying these things now because somebody that she does not like is president. Um, but, you know, a lot of these same things you could say about the Obama presidency. But Hollywood went silent for an entire eight years because this was their guy. This is a guy that they liked. So they're not going to say anything about it. You know, they're not going to stand up to power when it's their guy, even though their guy made many of the same mistakes that his predecessor made, that, that George W. Bush made. And Trump is probably going to continue a lot of the same mistakes that Obama made. And I'm not trying to defend a lot of what Trump said or what Trump has said over time. I do think that a lot of what he said has been overblown. I think she pointed specifically at when Trump mocked a reporter with a disability. Uh, but that's a, a contrived story. That's made up. If you go back and you, you look at, there's some good compilations out there, but of Trump basically mocking people that he's saying are, are flustered. That's the same motion he was doing. And, and the guy who he's allegedly mocking, Trump said he didn't know he was disabled. But then if you, if you watch him talk, I, you know, I actually watched the video. I want to see what is his disability. This, this happened back, um, back when this happened and he talks completely normally, you know, his, his hand is, is uh, I don't know what the right adjective is, but his his hand is kind of curved, his wrist is curved, and he, he holds it up. But he talks completely normally. He's an intelligent guy. You know, he's a reporter and a, and a photographer, um, and he speaks clearly and, and intelligently. So for Trump to be doing that sort of motion, first of all, it makes no sense with this uh, with this man's disability. But you see him do it, you know, 10 other times, at least, you know, five to seven other times where he's you know, imitating people being flustered. And, and, and in this sense, he was mocking this guy for changing his story. Like basically, you know, in the face of power, he changed his story. So that's when he goes, oh, 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 you know, his kind of uh, whatever motion that he's doing, it, it, it matches what he's done in other instances pretty well. So... I think for people to focus on that, on, on you know that action as being the evidence that we need that Donald Trump's a cancer on America and that he's not capable of being in the office of the presidency of the United States, I think it's irresponsible. I think it's misleading for people to say that. I would love to hammer Donald Trump on on many of his policies. I'm completely in favor of doing that. I've tried to do that on this show, talk about how I think his protectionism will be damaging, um, talk about how you know, a lot of his views on, on civil liberties I strongly disagree with. Uh, we can talk about all those things. I would be very happy to do that because I think he is a big government guy, and I, I don't think he really moves us any closer to freedom. Um, I do think he doesn't move us as far away from freedom as Hillary Clinton would have, which is why I said I think if I had to choose between the two, I would pick Donald Trump. But 
I do think his his policies are damaging, but they're not really damaging. I think in in a different way or any more so than they were under President Obama or under President Bush. You know, I think all three have have had very damaging policies in their own ways. And and I don't think any of them are really very different from one another, like I said before. Um, but that's not the point that, that Meryl Streep is making. Basically, they're saying that, continuing to hammer home this point that Trump is a, is a sexist and a racist and a misogynist and uh, a bigot, you know, all of those types of points that have been said over and over again by the same people. And America isn't responding to it. And all that you're doing is you're turning off a lot of the United States from, you know, actual legitimate concerns once Donald Trump becomes president. Because now people don't trust the entire media. People have turned off from, you know, 95% of the media and they've retreated to the places that haven't been calling Donald Trump a racist for the last 18 months. And that's a pretty small section of the internet right now. That's a pretty small section of the media world right now. But you know what happens when Trump comes into office and he is instituting harmful policies? Well, if that 95% of the media are the ones reporting on it, people aren't listening to them anymore. They're going to call it fake news. They think everything now is fake news. And I don't really blame people for responding that way, but that's what's happening. And the more that the Meryl Streep's of the world try to preach to the rest of the United States and try to say that, you know, she is one of the marginalized people. I forget the adjective that she used to describe Hollywood basically as being victimized. Uh, the more that the Meryl Streep's of the world try to make those points, the more that they turn off most of the United States and the less that the rest of the United States is going to listen to those types of people, you know, to, to people that think that way. And I don't think that that's good. You know, I don't think that when social justice warriors, I've hammered, you know, I've hammered them a lot on this podcast, but that they turn off opposing opinions. I think that's dangerous when they turn off, you know, all opinions right of, you know, right of Bernie Sanders, when they say that all those people are, are loons and they won't listen to their opinions, won't even allow them to come on campus. I think that's very dangerous, but it's the, it's the same when people on the other side of the spectrum do it. You know, when, when Donald Trump supporters or people that have come to come to support Donald Trump turn off everything, you know, left of center when they say everything left of center is biased i can't trust it i'm not going to listen to these people's opinions it's fake news i think that's really dangerous as well because then you're susceptible of being in your own bubble as well so you know both sides are equally susceptible to being in bubbles and that's been the big discussion today you know are cities the bigger bubble than rural areas and you know i don't really know if that's the the best discussion to be having of course hollywood is a bubble you know, of course, there's a certain orthodoxy, there's a certain accepted way of thinking in Hollywood, and anybody that deviates from that way of thinking isn't accepted into the club, basically. You know, isn't treated the same as people that have these kind of accepted opinions. Um, that certainly happens. But, you know, there's a bubble that exists in, in rural areas of people that, that think differently, and you don't hear differing opinions from those. So I don't really know if that's the best discussion to be having. But What's happening is these anti-Trump people are continuing to double down on the same rhetoric that really helped 
Trump to win the election or that really cost Hillary Clinton the election because people are being turned off by this. And like I said, you know, I don't disagree with much of what Meryl Streep said. You know, I don't think much of it was wrong besides, you know, besides focusing on that mocking a reporter uh, instance. You know, she spent a, a good amount of time talking about that. But I'm going to read a couple quotes that, you know, I actually agree with. Of course, I, I don't, <laughs> the way that she's trying to frame it, I don't agree with. But uh, she says, quote, disrespect invites disrespect. Violence incites violence. When the powerful use their position to bully others, we all lose. Um, she also said, quote, that's why our founders enshrined the press and its freedoms in our Constitution. End quote. Uh, so those things I agree with. And I, I have a huge problem with the powerful. And I'm when I'm talking about the powerful, I'm talking about, you know, the the people that hold most of the power in our federal government. Of course, you know, the powerful applies to far more than that. But, you know, I think that when certain policies are forced down on on Americans, really without having a voice in how these things are pushed down, we have a constitution in place. That's the framework of how this country was supposed to be run. And the people that initially agreed, basically, to, to create the United States, initially ratified the constitution and the states that came into the Union after the original 13 states, um, when they basically ratified the Constitution by agreeing to join the Union, um, when those rules are broken, I think it's the powerful using their position to bully others, doing things for political gain. And that's what I disagree with. That's one of the reasons why I started this show, why I wanted to talk about what's happening in the world because I, I see this happening all the time that the powerful are using their position to bully others and I agree that we all lose when this is the case now of course this is not how Meryl Streep would want her words to be interpreted but when I heard that sentence that's the first thing I thought of you know I'm not I'm not affected by anything that Donald Trump the candidate or the entertainer said Nobody is affected by anything that he said. There's nothing that his words can do to hurt somebody. And if you are affected by words, if you are physically hurt by words, then I think you need to look in the mirror and you need to do some, some introspection. The only time when Donald Trump's words become dangerous is when he is put into a position of power. And if that office did not exist with that level of power then there's nothing that Donald Trump could do to hurt you. There's nothing that Donald Trump, the businessman, could do to hurt you. Or if he did do something to hurt you, you're in a position to, to sue him and to, and to get damages. But these positions of power in government that are, that are within a system now that's gone far beyond what the rules of the game actually allowed that system to do, that's when it becomes dangerous. And so it's funny that it's funny that all of a sudden people are pointing to the Constitution, that the left is pointing to the Constitution when everything that they do, you know, everything that they've tried to push down our throats in this progressive era, really, I mean, you could point back to the to the New Deal and then through into the Great Society um, into today. And of course, I can't talk quite as much about those times, but really in my lifetime, it's been 
a movement toward centralization. And that's what progressivism has become. Um, but now all of a sudden the Constitution matters when all of those policies fly completely in the face of the rules that the Constitution put into place. And now all of a sudden freedom of the press matters. Um, you know, those parts of the Constitution matter, but the other parts don't matter. So the Founding Fathers, you know, when they, when they put the First Amendment into place, they really knew what they were talking about. But the Second Amendment, no, that's outdated. That's, that's what these people say. Oh, you know, restrictions on the federal government. No, that's from a different age. You know, that hasn't aged well. But freedom of the press, yes. Um, you know, freedom of speech, yeah, to an extent, unless it's hate speech. That's what they also say, that there's, you know, some sort of distinction between freedom of speech and hate speech. And, and you know, hate speech, the only way to say something is hate speech is how somebody will react to that given speech. Well, that inherently makes it not free. If, if the freedom of your speech is contingent on how somebody else reacts to that speech, then you do not have freedom of speech. But it's funny, this picking and choosing. And, you know, Meryl Streep obviously is guilty of it. People that think this way are very guilty of it. But now all of a sudden we're pointing to the Constitution. These people are pointing to the Constitution when they could not care less about the Constitution or care less about the rules of the game. They care about it when it applies to them, when it supports their argument, and then they won't even mention it any other time. And anybody that does bring up the Constitution, they'll, they'll frame as being a Tea Party fringe, you know, part of the Tea Party fringe, and that they don't want to be part of the modern world because the, the rest of the modern world does all of these things that, that they want to do. Well, tough. Because we have certain rules of the game, and that's how things should be being done. That's how this country was founded. And that's one of the things that I think annoys me the most. Uh, so I don't want to talk too much about this whole Meryl Streep thing, because I think th there's so much commentary out there about it that I'm not really offering anything too unique. Uh, I do apologize for taking another almost entire episode to talk about higher education, but it's one of my favorite topics, and I had to tack that article and also bring up the discussions that I had over the holidays uh, because I think they're interesting and I think that they're conversations that that need to happen that if, if you hold those views or if you're at all swayed by what I'm saying if you would all agree with me or at least think that moving in in the way of freer markets is the way to go these are things that we should be bringing up most people have not even ever heard that argument before most people have only heard the arguments, you know, in favor of trying to tinker around the margins with our current system rather than, you know, how can we actually fundamentally change it? Uh, like, I, I'm not sure if a lot of the people in that room when I was having that conversation had ever heard any of the arguments that I was making. Um, so I think these are important conversations to have. Of course, do them in a respectful way. I, I, I did it in a very respectful way, never said anything personally about anybody else. Um, I think the other side at times was not as, uh, you know, did not <laughs> afford me the same respect. But um, I think holding those conversations with respect and putting your viewpoints out there in a sensible way can only help our cause. At least exposing people to those ideas is beneficial. So I want to thank you for listening. A long episode today. I'm going to look where I ended up. Um, wow, almost an hour and four minutes. Uh, so one of the longer episodes I put out in a long time, but uh, I'll put out a longer episode to make up for 
not getting one out this weekend like I had promised. So thank you for listening, and hopefully I will have episode 35 out pretty soon.